You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Last week, we also asked ourselves the question, what does a New Testament church look like? We're seeking to be a church as prescribed and described in the New Testament. And so to answer that question, last week we we looked not to our current culture, we looked not to modern church practices, we looked at the very first church to exist in Acts uh, chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. We were looking at uh, what they were doing and what we saw was a spirit-filled New Testament church. And through our study of that last week, What we saw was that a New Testament church is an abiding church. They're abiding in the Lord together. So as we're called to abide in the vine of Christ, we're also called to abide in the Lord together. This is a group effort. And so as we examined uh, the text last week, we applied four foundational distinctives that mark a New Testament church. I'm just going to remind you what they were. Well, so what we saw was that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? They were submitting to God's word together as the apostles taught. And so that reminds us as a church as well to be devoted to receiving God's word Together, We also seen that they were devoted to sacrificial fellowship. They were spirit-filled and they were open-handed and they were caring for one another. And so we as a church, modeling ourselves after the New Testament church, need to be devoted to that as well. Hospitality, generosity, love for one another, open-handedness with the stuff that we have. And then we also seen a third point, that they were devoted to the regular assembling of worship, the gathering of God's saints on the Lord's day. And we also seen that they did this day by day. It wasn't just on one day. Throughout the week, they were gathering in each other's homes. They were devoted to the regular assembly of God's people. And so we Today should as well, as the Spirit leads and as the Word guides, be regularly assembling day by day. Definitely on Sundays. Sunday should have an extremely high priority in our life, but even more throughout the week. And we do that together as a church through our small groups, regular gathered worship. And then lastly, we've seen last week that they devoted themselves to the prayers. They believed firmly in the power of prayer. They believed that they could do nothing apart from seeking the Lord first. And so nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years. We still need to seek the Lord first. And so we need to be devoted, fervently devoted to prayer together as the church. And on that note, I just want to invite all of you to come early to church, uh, 8.30 in the morning. We have a gathered time of prayer just outside in the cafeteria sitting area. We get together and we pray for the Lord to do what only he can do. So fervent prayer. So what we witnessed in Acts 2, 42 to 47 was not a consumeristic church. It was not an individualistic church. It was not a lethargic church. It was an active church. We witnessed them actively abiding in Christ and with each other. It was Jesus-built. It was spirit-filled. It was sacrificial. It was God-glorifying assembly of the saints. And that's our desire. 
That's our desire as a church. That's your leadership's desire as a church. That is God's desire for us here at Redemption to be devoted, to be abiding together. And so let me ask you, is that your desire? Is that your heart for the church, for how you are a part of the church? Do you want to be countercultural? even countercultural to mainstream Christianity, to be God's people assembled for his glory day by day. Jesus is building his church. And we want to find ourselves inside of what he is building, not what man is trying to build. Now, over the past couple sermons, I also mentioned a few times some metaphors that Scripture uses to describe the church, right? The flock, the body, the temple, the bride, the family, the army. As we continue on this quest today to know what the church is supposed to look like, today we're just going to look at a few of those metaphors that God uses to describe his church. And as we examine these metaphors for the church, what we're going to discover is one common denominator. And that common denominator is connection. The church is connected. As God's people assemble for God's glory, connection is the key. As the church abides together, the church also connects together. And without connection, there is no church. And so as we go to look at that today in God's word, let's pray and ask for his guidance in all of this. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you oh, just singing, singing about your holiness, singing about your righteousness, singing about your goodness and your mercy and your grace towards your people and how you have saved us so valiantly, so victoriously in the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we treasure that this morning as your people. That's the reason that we're here. We are here for you. And Lord, we pray that deep in our hearts you would further transform us into the image of your Son. And as you renew our minds and transform our desires, that, that we would begin to live out what you have called us to do. And as we look today as your word, from your word again, and we look to study and examine what our church needs to look like, Lord, we pray that you would teach us we know that you're Holy Spirit, that, that Lord, that you, that you wrote your word, that you inspired men to write exactly what you have for us today. It's sufficient, it's perfect, it's inerrant, it is full. And Lord, we pray that, that as we take this in, that you would apply it to our hearts deeply by the power of your spirit, and that you would do your work of change in us. And ultimately, that you would do it for your glory. We pray this in the name of our mighty King Jesus. Amen. So brothers and sisters, as we seek to be God's assembled people for God's glory, as we seek to be found in the church that Jesus is building, like I said, connection is key. Last week we saw that the Spirit of God always moves the people of God towards the Word of God. This week what we're going to see is that the Spirit of God connects the people of God to the people of God. And the first way we're going to examine that today is through the biblical metaphor of the church being the body of Christ. This is a big subject. We're only going to look at a portion of that today. We're going to look at more of this next week as well. But your main point to start this morning is that we are his body growing in maturity together. We are his body. 
So we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and then 2, and then 4 as well. And as we look at the book of Ephesians, we're reminded that Paul wrote this in about 62 AD. He was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. He was writing it from prison, and he begins his letter to them by reminding them of the riches that they have in Christ. This Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead and who has ascended to the right hand of God in the heavenly places, who Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Meaning that Jesus is the highest. Jesus is the greatest authority in all the universe. There is nothing above him. Nothing comes before him. And his authority is unmatched and it is eternal. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what we see here to start off with, friends, is that Jesus not only rules as the final authority over all of the universe, but he also rules over the church, which is his body. And we see that the rule over his church is different than how he rules over the universe. His rule is an intimate, loving, connected rule. We can't miss how incredible this is. Before you were a Christian, you were under the authority of God in a general sense, just like the rest of creation, awaiting judgment because of sin. But now as Christians, as those who have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now under his authority in a loving, intimate, abiding relationship of grace. Paul says, In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In our salvation, not only are we saved from our sin, but we're saved to the body of Christ. We are now brought so close, so near to God, that we are now the body, the spiritual body of Christ on this earth. The church is the glory of God made visible in his body of people. We are the church. We are connected to him, and he is connected to us as one body. And then inside of that body, he has great purpose and amazing function for us. Ephesians chapter 4, just look over to the other page. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it says that he, this is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus is building his church and he's making us into his image, which means he is maturing us. And inside of that, he's also uniting us together within this context of the local church, Jesus's church. So the first thing we see here is that he equips us. He equips his body for the work of ministry. The body of Christ is a ministering body. It is a functioning body. And as Jesus is the head of the body, Jesus gets things done. Jesus is a worker. He is always working. He is always building his church. And he does this by extension through us, the members of his body. And so towards that effort, he gives the church spiritual leadership. Leadership, not to go out and do the work that he's called you to do, but to train and to equip you for the work that he's called you to do. If you were to ask me what my job description boiled down should be in the church as a pastor, as an elder, and as other elders will come in, our job description is to equip the saints for the glory of God. And so as he equips you, he does this by his grace together in the context of the church to do what? To do the work of ministry. Secondly, we see that he equips the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus is a bodybuilder. He desires us to grow. So not only to do the work of ministry, but also to grow within the church. So just like weightlifting, muscles need training. When we first come to Jesus Christ, when we are saved, we are young. We are babies. We are weak. In many ways, when we come to Jesus Christ, we are just infants. But his plan is is never to leave us in our infancy. His plan is always to grow us. His plan is never to leave us in our weakness. His plan is always to grow us up in his strength, to strengthen you and to mature you into his likeness. And then thirdly, what we see here is that he supernaturally equips us and grows us and ultimately unites us together. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Jesus, as he builds his church, is about building a a united church, a church of unity, not a church of separation, a church that is glued together by his grace. And that glue and the evidence of that glue is that we are now growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. We are Christ-centered. He is here with us, and we trust in him as our very core, our foundation. And if you look at verse 14, The purpose of him growing us and equipping us, maturing us, uniting us, is so that we may no longer be children. So that we may no longer be children. 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to do what? To grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's the body work that's happening here. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every point with which it is, every joint with which it is equipped. When every part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now Paul has much more to say about the body functions within the church, and we're going to get more into that next week. But for now, what we need to know is how vital it is to understand that the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is where God wills that you grow as a Christian. The body of Christ is where God wills that you function as a Christian. The body of Christ is where God wills that you love as a Christian. We saw that just clearly in his purpose to grow us here, that, that he is not satisfied to leave us as spiritual babies. You know, some of you moms would love to, to keep your babies babies. Any moms would love to just get that time back, right? Maybe some of you not so much. That's not Christ's plan for the church. His plan for the church is to grow you up. Just think about it. How good is a baby at changing its diaper? How good is a toddler at cleaning its room? So if the church remained spiritual newborns and toddlers, we would never get nothing done for the kingdom of God. It would be a mess. It would be disunity rather than unity. And God is always after unity among us. Think about it. How long, can, how long can toddlers play peacefully together? When it comes to toys, they don't want to share. Their favorite word is mine. It's mine. Everything is mine. And there's often tears. Christ's plan for the church is never to leave us in our spiritual infancy. His plan is always to grow us. To raise us up. To teach us to walk like Christians, to teach us to talk like Christians, to teach us to obey, to teach us the right way, to show us the path, to give us the knowledge of the Son of God that we need, to equip us for the work of ministry. If you were to sit down and, and build some kind of a life statement, where is that in your statement? That, that I am here for the work of ministry. And that comes through God maturing us among us. That's why he's given us to each other. So, so being a part of the church is so much more than Sunday mornings. It's so much more than a service. It's so much more than just a safe place for my family. It's so much more than a place just to come and consume. Jesus has brought us together as his body to grow us up together, to build us up together, to equip us together, to unite us together, and to mature us for mission. For his mission and for his glory. Is that how you view the church? Are you wanting to grow? 
Are you wanting to mature? Or, or are you satisfied in spiritual infancy? Are you functioning as a mission member, a part of the body of Christ? Our vision statement here at Redemption Church is the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the mature multiplied for the glory of God because we know that that God's plan is to grow us. As we disciple one another, we mature, we grow, and the natural outflow of that as the Spirit works in us by his word is that we go. We seek the lost. We seek that they would be redeemed. We seek then to disciple them so that they would be matured, and then as they are matured, we want to multiply, send them out, For the glory of God. And so it all starts with understanding this glorious, joy inducing truth that we are His body. Now we are growing in maturity together. Now, like I said, there's much more to be said about the body, how God gifts His church, all of these things. We're going to talk more about that next week. But another metaphor that we want to look at used in scripture to describe the church is the metaphor of marriage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33. Just flip over your page, most of you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33, we're going to see here that we, the church, are his bride. And as his bride, we are to be growing in purity together. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because why? Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this is a text we often go to for marital counseling, maybe premarital. But what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, as they continue on in the book of Ephesians, what it means to be a part of the household of God, and we should definitely be doing that. There is so much here about our marriages being modeled after Jesus Christ in his church, but what we want to focus on is what is revealed about how Jesus approaches his church. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Everything he said before is referring to Christ and the church. What mystery is Paul talking about? Well, the mystery that he's referring to is the greater reality of what it means for a man to leave his family and hold fast to his wife, becoming one flesh with her. 
The mystery that he's talking about is the greater reality of the one flesh covenant between a husband and his wife. That two people are are married, they become one legally, physically, and spiritually. And what Paul is saying here is that marriage, that one flesh covenant, mysteriously reveals the greater reality of Jesus and his bride. The church. Marriage is about the gospel. Marriage is, 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 is about a bridegroom and a bride. Marriage is about a coming marriage supper. That, that we, the church, are his bride. He holds fast to us. We are in a one flesh covenant with him. Again, looking back to the body as well. And so this concept of our spiritual marriage to Christ is seen throughout all of Scripture. As as God leads his people throughout the whole Old Testament, he would refer to himself as being married to his people. Isaiah 62, verses 4 to 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God delighted in his assembled people. He delighted in Israel as a groom delights over his bride. Even in spite of all of Israel's unfaithfulness, he vowed to be the faithful one, to be the faithful bridegroom. He promised also to redeem his bride. Hosea 2, 16, and then verses 19 and 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And we know that this promise of the coming marriage from the Old Testament is perfectly fulfilled in the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Remember when John the Baptist was was defending Jesus, was defending the truth about the Messiah in Christ. In John chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, he says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. As great as John the Baptist was, he was not the bridegroom. There is only one, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one who truly and perfectly loves his bride, the church. Then Ephesians 5, verses 23 to 33, shows us how much he loves his church. And the first thing we see there is that he gave himself for us. He gave himself up for us. The bridegroom died for us, his bride. 
He went to the cross willingly for us to save us collectively from our sin. Jesus' love for the church is sacrificial. It is selfless. It is willing. It is humble. He gave himself up for us. We also see that he cleanses us. As God saves his church, he forgives us of all of our unfaithfulness, all of our sin. He washes us clean by the water and the word, meaning that we are raised up with him into new life by the washing of regeneration, and we are cleansed completely of our sinful nature. And we are continually washed by his word. We also see here that he nourishes us. Verses 29 to 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So when you are a member of the body of Christ, you receive his sustenance. He feeds you by his word, and he cares for you as his own body. He loves us. Again, as a husband and a wife are are one body, it speaks to the eternal truth that Jesus will always love and care for his one body, the church. So we see inside the marital covenant, we see love at the center of that and how that reflects the love of Jesus Christ that he has for his church. He who loves his wife loves himself and cares for his body. Last we see, he sanctifies us. Divine love always seeks to sanctify. He died that he might sanctify her, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's, that's his desire for his church. While we are here, he is sanctifying his bride. He is washing us clean. His desire is that we would be without blemish. As we are saved as Christians, we know that when we are saved, we are declared righteous. We are declared clean and yet in our practical walk, we still, are, we still have dirt. We still have sin. But his goal in our life is to be moving us in holiness towards himself. While we are here on this earth, we will never reach this perfect, spotless, blemished, unblemished um, character. But when he comes back, we will be glorified, perfect in his sight. Jesus is faithful. He who began a good work is faithful to bring it to completion. He is the one that does this. His purpose and position towards his bride is to sacrificially love her for the purpose of her purity. For the purpose of her holiness. That's God's desire towards you. As Jesus died on the cross because of our unfaithfulness and then he rose from the grave conquering our death and our punishment, he began the work of sanctification in us. This is a work that we join him in. 
This is the part of your salvation where you join Jesus in the work. It's ongoing, progressive cleansing from sin. That's what he is all about. Less of the old man, more of the new, the bride. Just like John Baptist said, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus is faithful to do it because he is the faithful husband. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, or if you're not sure, We need to understand that our unfaithfulness against God is worthy of eternal punishment. Because sin is punishable by eternal death. You know, hell is so horrific because God is so holy. He has to punish sin. If God didn't punish sin, God wouldn't be just. But God, knowing that you couldn't be good enough, knowing that you can't be faithful on your own, knowing that you can't stop sinning against him in your own strength, he had the plan before the beginning of time to send the bridegroom. His plan was to send his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the saving one, the sanctifying husband. I've got a book on my shelf at home. Its title is, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. It's such an awesome title. This is all about the ultimate love story. This is why we love love stories. This is why we love stories about heroes saving planets and saving people. This is why we love love stories about knights coming and saving princesses. This is why we this is why young women long for that day of marriage, that wedding day. This is this is ultimately why we get married. Jesus is the bridegroom who saves and sanctifies his church. Is this how you view the church? Is this how you view Jesus? If you remember back to uh, the sermon series at the very beginning, we talked about how God gets the most glory when his image is more clearly being displayed in us. Have you ever had to polish silver before? You know, when you're at your grandma's house, and she's got her china cabinet, and she's got the silver dishes, and you want to do something nice for grandma, and so she hands you, I think it's silvo and a cloth, and she wants the silver to be cleaned, right? And when silver tarnishes it, it gets this kind of black, cloudy cover all over it. And so as you take the cloth, and as you take the silvo, and as you polish, the tarnish comes off, and it becomes more shiny. Before you do that, when you're looking at that plate in all that cloudiness, you can barely see your image. But as you polish the silver, you can see your reflection more clearly. That's what the bridegroom is doing. That's what he's doing in his church. It's like silver being cleaned. He can better see his reflection in the image of us. There is, there is less spots than there were before. There is less, less blemishes than there were before. He can see the splendor of himself being reflected in you. That's what he's about. And so the church is his bride growing in purity. 
And so as we think about that and we, and we ponder the beauty of, of this marriage that we have with Christ, what are we to do about this? How do we apply this? If Christ's purpose in our life together as the church is to make us a pure bride, what's our part in all of this? Well, as always, in the strength of the Spirit, we need to lean into Christ's cleansing purposes here as a church. As Paul preaches in Philippians 2.12, we need to work out our salvation. As he also says in 1 Timothy 4.7, we need to train ourselves for godliness. We don't just sit back and expect to be changed. When Paul talks about Jesus washing us with his word, we can't be washed by the word when the word is closed. As the Spirit of God leads the people of God to the Word of God, we have to understand that biblical transformation doesn't happen by absorption. Biblical transformation happens by ingestion. It has to come into you. You have to eat His words. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, but the Holy Spirit never works apart from his word. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It has to come in. You've got to get the word into you for the Spirit to do the deeper work that is needed. And the beauty of this is that we get to do this together as the bride. As the collective bride of Jesus Christ, we get to do this together. This is the gift that God has given us. That we can shine God's word into each other's life. We can open it, speak it, counsel it, pray it towards one another. And it goes in and the Spirit uses it and it does its work. The church is an act of faith. Active faith. As Jesus, our bridegroom, nourishes us and cherishes us, we need to reciprocate because it's a relationship. Marriage isn't a one way thing, right? Husbands, right? Wives. It's not a one way thing, it's a reciprocal thing. As he feeds us, we receive his sustenance. As he loves us, we love him back. As he sanctifies us and cleanses us, we seek to shine the better reflection of his glory back to himself together because we are his bride. We are growing in purity together. And so let me ask you, how is your purity going? If you were a silver plate in the hand of God, how much tarnish would be on that plate? If Christ was to hold you up in front of him, would he see more of himself today than he did a year ago? Are you in awe of his faithfulness to cleanse you? Are you in awe of his faithfulness in light of your unfaithfulness? Are you leaning into his cleansing purposes in your life. He's given us each other for that. We are his bride growing in purity together.
So we're, we're his body, we are his bride, and then the last metaphor we're going to look at is that we are his temple. The church is his temple. And we are to be growing in sacrifice together. So we're going to turn to 1 Peter verses two, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And Peter here is writing to Christians and churches uh, that are now what would be called modern Turkey. These churches were experiencing much persecution and much suffering. And so he's, remind, he's writing to them to, to remind them and to teach them to remain faithful in such times. He writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Again, we see this growing. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These churches that Peter was writing to were experiencing real persecution, real Hostility. What we experience here in the West is nothing compared to this. There are Christians around this world experiencing this right now. And the hope that Peter wants for the church is not that they would escape the persecution, not even that they would be rescued from the persecution, but that they would hold fast to the hope that is found in growing up in their salvation. That they would see the Lord as best. And that they would understand that in their salvation, they are united to Jesus as a spiritual house. Where he is the perfect cornerstone. He is the sure foundation. Cornerstones are so important when it comes to, to ancient building. They had to be perfect. They had to be straight. They had to be set plumb. They had to be square. They had to be level. If the cornerstone is not set perfectly, the rest of the building will fall apart. He is the cornerstone. Jesus is the sure foundation. And that they, as a church, can build their faith and their trust on him no matter what comes their way. Peter says they are living stones. And so as Jesus builds his church, as he builds his church upon himself, in a very real sense, Jesus saves you and makes you a living stone and he stacks you upon himself. He stacks you upon the immovable and perfect straight plumb level stone. As the, as the curtain was, was torn in two at his crucifixion and as the temple in Jerusalem served no purpose any longer, now that Jesus has risen from the grave and as he ascended and sent his spirit and he is building his church, God's very presence now 
goes into his church, his temple. We are his spiritual house. We are his temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are the temple, that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God's plan from the very beginning, from the very beginning of time, is to always dwell with his people. Remember back to the garden. He he personally dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden until they sinned, when they were cast out of his presence. When Israel was in the desert with Moses, God's presence dwelled with his people through a pillar of fire and smoke and and a cloud on the mountain and then in a tabernacle. When Solomon finished the temple that he was building in Jerusalem, God's presence came down and dwelled with his people. And then as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, when he came, the very presence of God was with his people. In fact, the Gospel of John says that he tabernacled among us. But now in the church age, as Jesus ascended to the heaven, there is no more garden, there is no more tabernacle, there is no more temple. Jesus is in heaven, but God's very presence dwells among his people in the church. You are his temple. His spirit dwells within you individually and collectively as his church. So what does that mean for us today? To be his temple. Why is that so relevant for us today as Redemption Church? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, we need just to ponder at the beauty of that. Ponder at the beauty of what God has done. Just think about it. No longer is God's presence shielded from us. He is no longer veiled in a cloud. He is no longer hidden in a pillar of fire and smoke. He's not sealed behind a curtain anymore. No longer is his presence reserved for one priest on one day. Because of the goodness and the glory and the cross of Jesus Christ, because of his finished work, we now have bold access to God. And his very indwelling spirit is within us. And so I'm going to ask you to look around the room. Look around the room at each other. You're looking at the temple of God. You're looking at people who have the very indwelling presence of God in them, in us. You're looking at living stones in the temple of the Most High God. And, and, and think about those stones and how they are stacked upon Jesus. Also think about those stones between Jesus and us the legacy of the saints who have gone before us were stacked upon them as well. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the the pure and perfect level plumb, perfect cornerstone. And this magnificent temple that God is building is full of his spirit. Full of his spirit for the purpose of worship. Worship that is described here as spiritual sacrifice. 
As Jesus was the final and perfect lamb sacrifices, blood sacrifices are no longer needed. Death is no longer needed. It is once for all. And as we gather together as God's people for God's glory, and as we're transformed into his image, we are conformed more and more into the reflection of Jesus Christ. That is spiritual sacrifice. That's what the Spirit of God does in us. Romans 12.1, Paul expounds on this even further. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so maybe you ask, what is worship? Holiness is worship. More of Christ in me is worship. More of his reflection of himself Back to him is worship. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. A living sacrifice always praises God by our lips but it's also followed up by our feet and by our hands. It's not just saying, I believe, it's living, I believe. And the spirit inside of us is producing fruit. The spirit produces Christ-like fruit in us, reflecting it back to God that is spiritual worship. As the temple of God, we need to live lives of sacrifice. Again, not that we're trying to earn anything. We can't earn salvation by anything that we can do. It was all earned in Jesus Christ. He is the final death. He is the final sacrifice. Nothing we can do in our own strength can please God. But we're called to live lives of sacrifice by the Spirit and by the Word to live lives of holiness, to live out our worship. Jesus was the final sacrifice. And when the church begins to look like Christ and live like Christ, God is glorified and it pleases him. It says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We want our God to receive the worship and the glory that is due his name. So when our lips declare who he is, when we worship him in spirit and truth, and when our lives match up sacrificially to what he is doing, God is pleased. This is sacrificial living. God is first. God is worth it. Others are first. Others are worship. Again, this is not a sacrifice that attempts to earn anything. Our reward is in heaven. It's a sacrifice of gratitude. It's a desire to bring pleasure to the Lord, and we do this better together. We can't do this on our own. John MacArthur says in his book, The Ultimate Priority, he says, the church is not a building made with stone. It is a building made with living flesh. We believers are living stones in God's temple. And when we come together, we constitute a place of worship where God manifests himself in ways that he cannot manifest himself when we are alone. 
Believers become the living temple of God, offering to him spiritual sacrifices not possible anywhere other than in the assembly of the redeemed church. If you try to live this out on our own, apart from the church, you're not going to get very far when it comes to living sacrificially. When you keep to yourself, you will never fully understand what it means to live for someone else. Because that's what sacrifice is. As Jesus laid down his life for us, he calls us into the sacrifice of laying ourselves down for him and for others. We get a small taste of what he has done for us. Laying down your life for someone else. Putting someone else's needs above mine. Desiring God's glory and not my own. Teaching me true humility. It grows a bit of Christ in me and it can't happen outside of the church. God gave you the church's gift. A gift to grow you in your maturity. A gift to grow you in purity. A gift to grow you in sacrifice. And a gift to bring him glory. The Spirit of God always connects the people of God to the people of God. As the church abides together, the church connects together. Without connection, as we're seeing in these three metaphors, there is no church. He is the head. We are his body. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. He is the cornerstone, and we are his temple. And may he receive all the glory for what he is doing through his church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how perfectly you wrote your word and how these three metaphors speak about this loving, intimate relationship that we have with you, that we, that we are your body, that we are your bride, that we are your temple where your Holy Spirit indwells us and we're built upon you. Lord, in all of this speaking about growing, we see that you're at the very center of it and that you desire to grow us in unity, in love, in maturity, in sacrifice. And Lord, all of this is meant to shine the glory of your face back to yourself. So Lord, we thank you for teaching us more and more what it means to be the church. We thank you that it shows us that it's more than Sunday, that it's, that it's more than something just good for my soul, that, that it's more than something good for the family, that it is about your glory, that you love the church, that you love your bride and that you're making us pure for your name's sake. Lord, we long for that day when we are brought into your courts, and we will be with you forever. But until that day, we know that you have this plan for us today, to grow us in holiness, to grow us in your likeness. And Lord, we know that we can't do this on our own. It's all because of the cross and an open grave. It's all because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And as we are guided by your word, motivate our hearts by your grace Motivate our hearts 
by the gospel. Empower us by your spirit to live this out. May we be a living temple that sacrifices ourselves for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.